The Titans are running over the competition. Mac Jones and Jamar Chase are in a tight battle for Offensive Rookie of the Year. And we have one exciting weekend of Halloween football coming up. Welcome to Saturday Morning Inspection. I couldn't tell if you were a Tom Brady fan or if you just had on your Halloween costume. I tell you what, man, after the weekend he had, it's hard to be a little bit of both. But I tell you what, the joke around Baltimore these days is, hey, what kind of rating does Lamar Jackson's favorite movie get? Rated Lamar. It's a good joke. I thought uh, it was fitting, you know, after the the tight battle this weekend uh, coming up, I could be a bear my favorite animal, and you could be a buccaneer, obviously. Uh, that was a funny joke, but uh, we thought that uh, since it's this weekend, is Halloween weekend, we should give the fans a little preview of our Halloween costumes, but I think it'd be unethical for me to do the whole show in this costume. It's rather hot, and it's kind of hard for me to maneuver the show. So I just thought, here it is. Here's my costume. Let's see if we can get it on there. Uh, there we go. I am a bear. Nick is going to be a pirate this year. And, uh, hey, what more could you ask for? All right, Nick, that was fun and all, but now we are suited to properly discuss some football. I thought it would be a fun bit uh, for us to show off our Halloween costumes. You look mighty, mighty nice as a pirate. I'm sure Alyssa loves that uh, now that you're happily married, um, you know. I'm sure it's going to be an exciting Halloween. Is she going to be like a lady pirate? I think she's trying to overcome the fact that I sort of represented Tom Brady and the Bucks there, her being from Boston at all. I think uh, I think she's just going to go as everything she can, Mac Jones, Mac and Cheese, things like that, just to just to replace Brady with Mac. I think that's what a lot of Boston people are doing these days. I, I could totally see that, uh, you know, just trying to do whatever they can to, you know, we let him go. He won a Super Bowl. It's a tough thing to get over. So, oh, yeah. Uh, but speaking of depressing and letting things go, uh, let's get into our first topic of the week. Uh, Tennessee absolutely slobber-knocked Kansas City this weekend, and Mahomes let the ball go a little recklessly at a good a few uh, a few fumbles, a few interceptions. I I don't know what's going on down there in KFC, in uh, KC, but it's not looking great. No, it's not. And we, we've talked about how bad their defense is, and they were bad again last week against Tennessee. They actually did a decent job on Derrick Henry, which surprised everybody. But A.J. Brown, uh, Julio Jones, and that passing offense made big play after big play. And Kansas City just had no answer for Tennessee. And look, we've got to bring up the reality. Patrick Mahomes is not playing like a top-five quarterback right now. I mean, where, where do you think – where do you see him right now where he's playing and how he fits in with the rest of the league? Uh, I, I see him probably top 10 for sure. Uh, here, here's, here's the thing. Here's a stat that I read. Okay. I read Mahomes is probably out of that top five. He used to be number one. He's out of the top five. He's in the five to 10 range, probably closer to five than he is to 10. And if you have a five to 10 QB, 
That's fine. That's good, even. That's that's fine. But when you have a 5-10 to 10 QB and you have a 30-second defense, maybe even worse, because I'm sure there's a couple of college defenses out there that are better than what Kansas City's been putting on the field, it doesn't work. That's not okay. You're not going to win games doing that, and clearly they haven't won games doing that either. So I think uh, this is just laments. You can do everything, but you need to be balanced. You can't. These high-powered offenses aren't going to last forever. They're going to slow down eventually, and if you neglect your defense, this is what happens. Well, not only do they neglect the defense, right? I think you got to put some of the blame on Andy Reid, uh, who's the head coach, Eric Bieniemy, who's the offensive coordinator with Kansas City. Look, we all saw Patrick Mahomes. He had the funky no-look passes and the crazy scrambles and the the, the jump balls, the left-handed throws, and everybody in the media oohed and awed and how different this was. Well, it's easy to do things like that when you're the most talented team in the NFL, which were they, which what they were for a couple of years, right? And now all of a sudden. They're not as good on defense. Obviously, they're terrible now. Their offense is not as good. Offensive line's a little worse. Tyree kills a step slower. Suddenly, you do all those funky plays. You throw terrible interceptions. And where's the coaching? Where's Patrick Mahomes' coaching from the Kansas City side? Either he's not getting the coaching or he's not maturing as a quarterback to handle that. And, and look, at this point, you know who he reminds me of? He reminds me of the sneakerhead guy from the State Farm commercials. If he keeps playing like this, I don't know. Did, did State Farm capture the real uh, kidnap the real Pat Mahomes and we're watching that sneakerhead? I don't know. But I tell you what, he has been bad and he's not getting any better every week. It's another really bad turnover and he just can't overcome it. And he needs to if Kansas City is going to turn it around. I think you hit it on the money. I think Baker and Patrick have been kidnapped by their respective agencies. And I, you know, uh, the insurance industry, it's big money out there. I think they have kidnapped the real QBs, put their stunt doubles out there, and this is what we're seeing, guys who can't play football. You know, I saw those guys early on in their career, they could play football. These guys who are on the field, they're not playing the same football they used to play. So I don't know who we need to call. We need to get, like, a private eye out there, someone to track them down, but uh, this ain't this ain't it, and this isn't going to work too well for them going on. No, 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 it certainly is not. And, and look, we got to give some credit to Tennessee though, right? This, this was a team that lost to the New York jets and and I had picked them to do very well this year. And at that moment I was like, well, they're going to stink. There goes my prediction. I'm going to look like an idiot. And they've turned it around with back-to-back really, really good wins, right? They beat Buffalo at home. They get Kansas city at home and dominate them. And this was a statement win for Tennessee. They look like a contender going forward. What do you think? It really, it's quite easy for them to turn it around. In the beginning, there's two options. Hand the ball to Derrick Henry or don't hand the ball to Derrick Henry. They chose to get fancy. They didn't hand the ball to Derrick Henry. What'd they say? Oh, well, maybe we should start handing the ball to Derrick Henry. Voila, he's now almost double the rushing yards of the second place rusher. He has double the touchdowns of the next person. He's like 800 in some odd yards, close to 900 rushing yards and 10 touchdowns so far. Just give him the ball. He's built like a Mack truck. You know, he's deceptively quick for how big he is. You give this guy the ball, he's going to bulldoze over everyone. And have I was noticing this. When he runs, he looks like he's, it's almost like Lamar. I see Lamar do this sometimes. They look like they're going so slow, but yet they're blowing past all of these high-level athletes. So I know they're, they're running very fast, but he look, he has some smoothness in his run as well. 
So just hand that guy the ball, you know, good 30, 30 plus times a game, and you're you're golden. Tennessee knows what the formula is. They just tried to get away from it. Yeah, I think at, at this point, maybe they're worried about him wearing down uh, or maybe getting injured or something like that. But I think they've realized that the only way they're going to win is if they give him the football and give him the football again and then give him the football again and repeat that, you know, for the next three plays. Uh, look, I, th- I think Tennessee is as emerged as a real contender in the AFC strictly because of Derrick Henry and play actions off of Derrick Henry. It's, it's really, really incredible. Um, speaking of next level contenders, I know this one hurts you a little bit. Cincinnati looked really good against your Baltimore Ravens at home. They beat them very, very handily. Jamar Chase, monster game, 200 plus yards receiving. Not bad for a guy who couldn't see the football you know, spinning in the regular season as he was reported as having issues doing that. I know you watched the game closely. What are, what are your thoughts on that matchup? What's your takeaways? Uh, obviously, divisional game, always going to be tough. Obviously, Baltimore has been having some injury woes and no excuses. They were 5-1 and one up to this point with all of those injuries. So, you know, they've done it to other teams before. So, no excuses but I think those injuries have finally caught up to them, and they've met a team that in the past has been slept on in the AFC North. I don't think you can sleep on them any longer. They look like an actual contender, a team that could you know, challenge the AFC North crown. Uh, it, it looks like a bona fide good defense and a great offense, and this pair and Burrow and Chase look for real. Chase isn't he he clearly is front runner for offensive rookie of the year next to Matt Jones and maybe sprinkle Kyle Pitts right behind them. Clearly, they're the front runners for offensive rookie of the year. He looks way beyond that. He looks like a front runner for like offensive player of the year. We're not even just saying rookies. He is phenomenal out there. I'm saying as a rookie, he's like in the top three of rod receivers out there. He is making plays, and he seems to be a true game-changer for the Bengals. Yeah, you're exactly right. I I think you showed me this stat. I think he's got the NFL record for receiving yards through seven games um, with well over 700 at this point. Insanely productive. Look, I think a lot of credit uh, goes to the balance of that team, right? They've got Joe Mixon at running back, who's among the league leaders in, in rushing. They lost Giovanni Bernard, and you were kind of wondering what they would do that running game. Well, it didn't slow that down at all. You know, they've been able to use that running game with a play action with Burrow. You mentioned their defense. Very, very balanced team. Very, very surprising team. Look, it, it must be kind of a spooky time of the year when we're talking about the Bengals being in first place in the entire conference. If the playoffs started today, the Bengals would be the number one seed. I don't know if that's a sign that the world's going to end or not, but if there is one, that's probably it. Yeah, uh, I don't like it. Uh, I respect it, but I don't like it, and I don't even want to talk about it anymore. So let's move on to our next topic, uh, something near and dear to your family. Mackie, Mac Jones, he had a heck of a game this week. He put up a ton of points, over 300 yards. I know it's against the Jets, but 54 points in the NFL, that's incredible. Yeah, it's obviously a great performance by that New England team, top to bottom. Very, very bad Jets team, there's no doubt about that. And unfortunately, uh, Zach Wilson at quarterback got beat up. He got hurt and he had to leave the game. You know, I I think there's reports out that he's going to miss the next few weeks with a strained PCL or a torn PCL ligament in his knee. 
Real shame for Wilson. Hope he gets better fast. He's fighting an uphill battle. But look, this New England team, they're three and four, but they've been kind of a better three and four, right? They played Dallas really, really close. Took them to overtime. They played Tampa really, really close. I mean, they make a kick. They beat Tampa. You know, they fumbled away a game they should have won against Miami. I mean, this team could easily be four and three, five and two with just a couple breaks going the other way. And Bill Belichick back there, you know, coaching that team, Josh McDaniels as the offensive coordinator, they're starting to get their groove, right? There were some issues on offensively if they were going to be good enough. The last few games, they put up 25 against Houston. They put up 29 against Dallas. And then they just put up 54 against the New York Jets. This offense is getting better very slowly and quietly. I think New England may be a force the rest of the year. And one thing I'd like to touch on, uh, they've been battling some injuries defensively, but that defense pitched a pretty good game against, it is the Jets, but still, limiting teams in the NFL at that level, the defense battling through a few injuries, getting back healthy, getting back to gel with each other after missing a few weeks, it's looking like you said, and all. what are we saying, first team we talk about this week, Titans, Doing pretty good defensively, good doing well offensively as well. Balanced team. Number two, Cincinnati. Good on offense, good on defense. A balanced team. New England, good on offense now, doing good on defense. Their balanced teams are what are winning football games. Teams like Kansas City, who are good on offense, horrible I don't even want to say you'd be better off not putting anybody out on the defense and hopefully someone trips or they commit penalties. I mean, that's basically what they're doing out there. Horrible, horrible, horrible on defense. You have to have a balanced team in this day and age. Yeah, I agree with you 100%. And I think you asked it a few minutes ago, you know, who is the offensive rookie of the year if the season ended today? And it's hard, you know, to not pick Jamar Chase. He's breaking records. But look, Mac Jones was replacing Tom Brady, right? He comes out of Alabama. We didn't even know if he was going to start. He starts week one. He's playing like he's doing. Just had his first 300-yard game. Had a good performance against Dallas. Big comeback against Houston. Look, I don't know how you don't pick him as the offensive rookie of the year. What do you What do you think? You going Chase or Mac Jones at this point? So initially at the beginning of this season when we made our picks, I, I chose Kyle Pitts to be my offensive rookie of the year. Look, he looks good. He's a distant third at this point. Uh, Maybe he picks it back up. There's still a lot of ball left to play. Anything can happen. Mac Jones looks great. Obviously, this award has historically been the best quarterback award. So that puts a lot of weight into it, okay? But Chase really, really impressed me. He went against Marlon Humphrey a lot. Uh, I'll say the the biggest thing that helped him is... Baltimore is down its starting corner and Marcus Peters. Uh, Anthony Averett was lined up against T. Higgins all night on the Bengals. T. Higgins, a formidable receiver as well. He was getting absolutely burned. A lot of safety help had to be dumped to that side of the field, leaving uh, Jamar Chase one-on-one matchups with Marlon Humphrey and Tavon Young, whoever whoever was on him. But... He capitalized on those matchups time and time and time again. Even if he got double covered, he got open. He, there, it's just such different positions, you know. Like, who are you going to pick? Your best soldier or your best general? It's it's so hard. There's two different positions. I think either way, you can't go wrong. I kind of want. I like to be the oddball. I kind of want to see it go to a receiver over a quarterback, but I don't think either one is the wrong answer at this point. 
Yeah, I think uh, our, our viewers know you may like to be the oddball after seeing your costume to, to start the show off. But I, yeah, I agree. I can't. You go, uh, I don't think you can go wrong with either of those guys. And speaking of going wrong, look, you got to bring up the San Francisco 49ers. This was a team that was supposed to be a Super Bowl contender going into this year. And that really tough division, the NFC West, they dropped an ugly Sunday night football game at home against the Indianapolis Colts. They're now two and four. And this quote from uh, Coach Mike Shanahan, I'm sorry, uh, Kyle Shanahan, uh, after the game when asked if Jimmy Garoppolo was still going to be a starting quarterback, his response, quote, I'd guess so, unquote. That's not really much of a ringing endorsement. And now the question has to be asked, is Kyle Shanahan on the hot seat? I, I guess. Is that a good enough answer? I, I, I don't. I don't way to, know. Way to take a real hard line stance, you know, way to put yourself out there. Uh, I think you said Kyle Shanahan's statement was, I guess, Mike Shanahan's statement would be, son, I'm really disappointed with how you've been doing. <laughs> uh, you've let me down. Yeah, I think Shanahan is on the hot seat. Do I think he's going to get fired? No. Do I think... They are going to have to make a very tough decision either later on this season or early into next season. Yes, they are going to have to pick a QB and they're going to have to roll with them. And I think it'll be, listen, this is your guy. Stick with him and win with him or you're gone. So I think in in that sense, he has another solid year with whoever he, but he has a, he's the hot seat because he's got to make a choice. He's got to pick Lance. He's got to pick Garoppolo. I don't know who you pick at this point. Yeah, I I, I agree with a lot of that. But I think more of the uh, blame, you know, a lot of blame has been thrown on Shanahan. A lot of it's thrown on Garoppolo. And some people have brought the injuries bug that just keeps seeming to hit San Francisco each of the last three years. At this point, we got to look at the general manager, John Lynch. He's the guy in charge of building that roster, building that depth. And ever since they've gotten back from the Super Bowl loss to Kansas City, you know, we can talk about injuries all we want, but all the teams fight injuries. Baltimore's fought a bunch of injuries. Dallas has, New England has, Green Bay has, you know, all these teams, the Chargers, Chiefs, all the teams have to compete and, and play through all these injuries. And San Francisco, the last few years, have not been able to overcome them. And look, that's either the coach in Shanahan or that's a general manager, John Lynch, not drafting and getting depth in the offseason, not going after the right guys. I think GM uh, Lynch is on the hot seat personally. I think he's, if he doesn't work this year, I think they could replace or demote John Lynch to bring someone else in. Because I, I think Shanahan's a good coach. I think he's a really good offensive coordinator. And I think they've got enough players to win, you know, even if they're not as good a quarterback as maybe we thought they were going to be. But the fact of the matter is, you know, you are what your record is, right? You, you brought that up last week. And the last three years, this has been a losing team and they're, they're not getting any better. I think they need to make moves uh, probably at the front office to think about better ways to build that team uh, coming in the offseason. Speaking of team building, you know, and, uh, and on tough losses, you got to look at Dan Campbell in Detroit, right? I mean, what a absolutely uh, gutty and tough performance. How many, how many uh, fake punts, two fake punts in an onside kick? Yeah, that incredible special teams play. Uh, I believe yeah. we say, you know, for the brand, you know, they, they did a great job for the brand. And, and touching, rolling this back a hair to be on the Kyle Shanahan subject, it doesn't matter who's on your team. If you're a good enough coach, you can take a bad group of players 
and make them play well. You might not win the games. Detroit is not winning the games. But you see them go out against a bona fide contender in the NFC, in the uh, LA Rams, a team that I picked to go to the Super Bowl and possibly even win the Super Bowl, a quarterback who I picked to be the MVP this season, and he gives them the fight of their life. They had to hold on for dear life as this Detroit Motor City team bucked around, jumped. It was like riding a wild bull. Like you had no way, you you were safe at no turn. Oh, they're going to punt? No, they're not going to punt. It's a fake punt. Oh, they're going to kick off? No, it's an onside kick. You had to watch your back at every corner. I love the aggressiveness. I love the play calling decision making that Dan Campbell has made. I just don't love the not winning. But, uh, you know, two out of three ain't bad, as they say. Right. And, you know, we talked about it in our show a few a uh, few weeks ago when we talked about analytics. Right. And the advantage, you know, finding different ways to give your team an advantage. And look, Dan Campbell, whether it was going for two uh, against Minnesota, whether it was his fourth quarter uh, aggressiveness against Baltimore, uh, the special teams aggressiveness now against Los Angeles Rams, his head coaching style is 100 percent giving his team the best chance to win by going differently, going against the grain, coming up with aggressive calls knowing they're a little lacking in talent. You know, I, I think a lot of it, a lot of the, the toughness of the losses is really getting to that roster. But I think Dan Campbell's leadership and the way he's getting those players to come out and fight every week. I tell you what, I'm rooting for the Lions, and I think they're a whole lot better than that record of 0-7. I, I, I think they're going to win more than one game here down the stretch. A little teaser for our potential a gut check segment coming at the end of the show. Um, do you have any other thoughts on Detroit or, uh, or Motor City, Dan Campbell? I, I think they're doing a great job. Uh, I'd like to see them win a few more. Uh, I would like to see... They, but like you said, they, they've gotten so close every time. They're just not converting. And that's what they say. You know, good coaching can get you so far. You got good... The best teams, the true contenders, find a way to win the close games. So hopefully they can start converting on some of these. But it's better to know that you had a bad team or went in a bad situation and to overperform... Dan Campbell's no way on the hot seat, in my opinion. They'd be crazy to let him go. He's really got this team playing very well. Uh, you got to ride with him for a few seasons to see what he can do. Seems like a great coach, real players coach. So I, I think, like you said, they've got to start winning some here. But another coach has been truly awful. He's gotten his guys. He's gotten rid of the guys he said weren't his guys. And even still... Justin Fields and Matt Nagy look terrible. Yeah, I, I mean, it's tough. I mean, the Bucs are a good team, but they look like it was high school against college or something like that. It was really, really bad. Fields had five turnovers. He had less than 200 yards passing, only three points the entire game. Tampa has some good players on defense, obviously, but they're really banged up in the secondary. This should have been a game for Fields to put up some yards, maybe throw a few touchdowns, even if they lost. He didn't do that. I think Fields is talented. I think we see the talent, but we got to come up with the realization now. Matt Nagy ruined Trubisky, Mitch Trubisky. He didn't do anything with Nick Foles, and now he's got Justin Fields playing horribly. We talked about coaches on the hot seat. I think Matt Nagy is number one. I think the real question at this point is, does he even make it to the end of the year? Does uh, GM for Chicago, Ryan Pace, does he make the decision to try and you know get another coordinator, new coach in there to help Fields along? Because at the rate Fields is going, I mean, could he be ruined eight games as a starter into his career? 
don't know. Uh, we've seen QBs be on a team. Like, perfect example is Adam Gase product, Ryan Tannehill, the, the more successful one right now. Uh, terrible at the Dolphins, or subpar, I won't say terrible. Then he's moved over to the Titans, and he's been a pretty good quarterback. He's been serviceable. He's not getting, you know, $40 million a year by any means, but he's doing what they ask him to do, and that's all you can ask of a guy like that. But Fields, while he is raw, while he is young, he has the talent. One thing he is not doing, he's not. He's playing very, very ugly football, a lot of turnovers, and he's really not showing. He is a flash here or there, but he's not improving from week to week. One week, he'll play terrible. The next week, you'll see some improvement. But the following week, he was worse than he was the first week. You just don't, I don't understand. There's not consistent improvement. There's one step forward, two steps back, two steps forward, three steps back. I don't understand what they're doing over there or what their actual problems are. But like you said, Nagy's definitely on the hot seat. And I don't know how much longer he's going to be able to last this season. Yeah, I, th- I think you mentioned Fields' up-and-down performance. I think that goes to the coach, right, especially for a rookie quarterback. So much of that is managing what your rookie can do well. You know, if he's more of a Trey Lance type, you know, you do more zone read, more bootleg, more play action, maybe fewer throws, more quarterback draws. If, if it's Mac Jones, what does Josh McDaniels in New England do? A lot of quick passes, a lot of quick reads, you know, uses accuracy and decision-making as a strength. Matt Nagy is not using any of Justin Fields' strength and only his weaknesses, right? He's forcing him to sit in the pocket, you know, make detailed reads while under pressure. You know, Fields is trying to make plays. I think he's trying to do too much. He doesn't know enough to make certain decisions, certain reads, and execute the offense well enough, and Nagy's not helping him out at all. I feel like every play with Fields should either be a zone read or a bootleg on the edge where he has two reads, short and long, and where he just tucks in and runs it. You know, maybe some quick screens to the outside, maybe some quick slants maybe a bomb every now and then just to stretch out the defense, but they're not doing any of that. They're they're treating Justin Fields like he's, you know, I don't know, like he's Alex Smith or some other pocket passer where it's all about decision-making and and, and reading defenses. And that's not what he is at this point in his career. You know, I I think Romo, you know, as nice as Romo is on the, on on the broadcast, I think he, even he started criticizing Matt Nagy, which is not a good sign for Nagy in Chicago. Yeah. Um, I, I hope they I hope they get better. I really do because I think Fields has a lot of talent, but I, I think Matt Nagy is, is is wearing really really thin there. Go ahead. Oh, I I, I just uh, well I completely agree with what you said. Got to get the side out of the get, get get this guy outside the pocket. Give him some play actions. Give him some zone reads. Let him be the athlete that he is, and that's how you win games. Run the ball. Let him let him set up the play action. Let, hit him with some zone reads. Let him be an athlete. Don't make him sit in the pocket. He's not Tom Brady. He's not throwing for 400 yards a game. So I don't know what they're doing. I also don't know what happened to Carolina. I Living in the Carolinas, you are also from the Carolinas. The Panthers are the team from around here. I I don't know what happened. Like what? I, they started out so strong, and then they fell off the absolute face of the planet. You could maybe say they played tough competition, but they played the Giants this week. They lost to the Giants. What is up? Yeah, they lost bad, right? 25 to 3. Darnold through three games. I think we talked on the show about Darnold's renaissance and you know getting him away from New York and going to Carolina, maybe a better organization, maybe more talent. You know, he's starting to thrive. We're starting to see his, you know, his gifts and, and the actual quarterback he can be. 
and then he stinks for four straight weeks. He was awful against the New York Giants. The New York Giants are not a good defense. We see teams move the ball up and down the field against New York. Dallas had a field day against them, for example. I mean, they're beat up on the offensive side of the ball, too. New York is. And, and Carolina couldn't do anything to stop them. Sam Darnold struggles. Look, he was benched in this game. You know, shout out to P.J. Walker from uh, the uh, XFL from making an NFL roster as Darnold's backup and then playing in the game. We're not going to talk about it, the fact he was three for 14 for 20 yards at the end of the game and really wasn't very good, but great job by him for getting in the NFL and living his dream after taking the long road there. But look, like you said, Carolina starts three and zero. they lose four in a row. This team's in a free fall. You know, I don't know how they get out of it. The only way they have a chance is maybe if Donald stops turning the ball over, but it looks like all he's doing now is seeing ghosts. Yeah. Back to, back to Halloween weekend. This, this, this isn't the weekend for him to see the ghost. They're going to be all over the field and uh, haunting his dreams. So let's hope that Darnold can get away from the ghost. And uh, I, I don't know how they fix it. I don't know if Matt Rule's a problem. I don't know if Sam Darnold's a problem. Uh, they Obviously, they have a decent defense. But everything seems to be falling apart for them. I've watched a few of their games this season. They catch zero breaks. They literally, everything goes against them. So maybe they are cursed. Maybe he brought the ghost to the team. They've, they finally made their way down from New York and they've, they found him again. But, uh, another, I'll, we'll touch on this. My pick offensive rookie of the year, Atlanta Falcons own Kyle Pitts in Atlanta. They're, they're getting hot. They're, they're heating up a little bit. Yeah. They're three and three after a big game from your boy Pitts, 163 receiving yards, Two big catches down the stretch against Miami. You know, this was a game at Miami. There was a lot of people where we were staying in South Beach that went to the game and and were kind of, you know, obviously came back disappointed. There were a bunch of Miami fans, of course. Uh, look, I, th- I think Matt Ryan, I think uh, new head coach Arthur Smith are starting to figure out Kyle Pitts' talent a little bit more. They're three and three. They're right in the thick of it in the NFC. Remember, there's seven playoff spots this year, four division winners, three wild cards. The NFCs, you know, they've got a few guys at the top. Other than that, it's really scattered. I mean, what do you think? I think this Atlanta team has a chance to get in the playoffs, maybe sneak in. You, you just kind of see them maybe taking that route. Uh, let's think. So it's Atlanta, Carolina, New Orleans, and Tampa Bay, yep. correct? Tampa Bay is obviously going to be the division winner. Yep. Um, I, I think that Atlanta, if they play hard – if they can finish second in their division, they have a good chance to take a wild card spot. I think uh, the Seahawks, that division, they're going to take two, maybe three spots. Depends on how everyone... Uh, LA and Arizona, both are going to take a spot. Um, Green Bay, maybe the Vikings, one of those teams, they both take a spot. I, I think they have a good chance uh, if if they play hard. they got to finish second in that division, though. Yeah, but I mean, you look at the quarterback matchups. They already played Brady in Tampa and lost, so they don't. They only have to play him one more time. And otherwise, they have they have Carolina, which is going to be either Darnold who, or uh, Walker. And we just talked about how bad that situation is. You know, they also have uh, they, they've got to deal with New Orleans, which usually is a good team. But they got Jameis Winston. They're really inconsistent. They had a really battle to beat a not very healthy uh, Seattle team on Monday Night Football. I, look, I, I think this division, at least second place, is wide open. I, I trust Matt Ryan more than I trust a lot of quarterbacks in the NFC. I, I think Atlanta has a chance to surprise some people and sneak into the playoffs this year. And um, I trust Ryan a heck of a lot more than I would trust 
you know, Jameis Winston or uh, any anybody else in that division outside of Tom Brady. So, uh, I, I I agree with you. I think I think that it's wide open second place. I think that the Falcons have the best chance to get there, and I think if they get that spot, they might find themselves playing a play-in game for the playoffs. You know, trying to make it past that divisional round. Yeah, and I will say this: watching Kyle Pitts down the stretch against Miami. Look, he is a matchup nightmare. The, the guy runs like a receiver. He's big, bigger than some tight ends, and he can j- get up the football, high point the football in traffic, come down with big catches. He's going to be super productive and super explosive the rest of the year. I'm excited when, to see what he does. He may find himself with Jamar Chase and Mac Jones, an offensive rookie of the year, uh, before the season is done. Um, I know I brought up Monday Night Football. I know this is one of your favorite things to hit on. You want to you want to go ahead and talk a little bit more about uh, the show Monday Night? Uh yes, I do. Uh we we yeah, let's go ahead and talk about that. Uh the Manning cast was back. Uh I think it's the hot new thing of the season. Uh I think it's a very good concept, a great idea. I watch it personally, so that's saying something. But Owning a production company, being a video guy, uh, I have some I have some critiques. I know they watched a few of our shows. I know that they took some notes from what we had to say. I, I've took down some notes of the general broadcast, not not the football aspect of it, but the broadcasting aspect of it. Uh, that, that I th- oh, give me one second. I had uh, some something popped up in my ear. I'm sure everyone's able to hear it, but uh. On the broadcast of the Manning cast, some notes. One, uh, I obviously have this issue as well, volume control. Everyone's got to have a consistent volume, can't have things popping up in and out. Uh, a lot a lot of uh, volume control. Some guests were quiet, Eli was quiet, Peyton's loud, uh, back and forth. But I think they'll get that issue figured out. Um, number two, always have the game on the screen always have to have the game on the screen. There's times when Peyton's doing his skits that uh, they take the game down completely. You maybe miss a play. No matter how small it is, even if it's jammed down the bottom corner, you got to have the game on the screen. Uh, So I I think that's one crucial part for fans. Everyone wants to see them. Everyone wants to hear what they have to say. But they also, I I don't think you want to sacrifice any of the game to hear what they have to say. So at least have it on the screen in some capacity. And just like us as a podcast, they are on the cusp of greatness with this show. I think they're not quite there yet. I think they have a little ways to go. And I think one thing we both agree on, the guests are a huge defining factor of if it's a good segment or if it's a bad segment. When you have uh, Gronk on... Gronk wasn't a great guest. Gronk wasn't very interactive. Uh, he seemed like he didn't want to be there personally. Not a great guest. Sue Bird, tough spot. She's not, you know, she's not a big football person. Like you could, she seemed a decent football person. She seemed to enjoy the game, but she's not Tom Brady. She's not Drew Brees. She's not Marshawn Lynch. She's not Pat McAfee. She hasn't played in the NFL. And if they want to hear some random Joe on the street, they're going to come watch us. We have that niche filled. They're not going to want to listen to Sue Bird talk. So I think the guests are very important. If they're going to go with the guests, which I think that's their shtick, is the guest. I think they need 
more guests along the lines of Pat McAfee. Great guest. One of the best guests they've had. I thought Nick Saban was a decent guest. I thought Tom Brady was an excellent guest. A lot of funny stories. A lot of good banter back and forth. Someone they know are very comfortable with. And someone they didn't know as well, probably, but was very funny. Marshawn Lynch kept them on their toes, kept everyone on their toes. Maybe drop a few F-bombs here or there. Maybe joke with them about whether they should have ran or passed on the one-yard line. There's a ton of good shot, uh, good things uh, going on with Marshawn Lentz there, making some jokes about how many shots a Hennessy takes before the game. You got to have people like that. You got to have entertainers on. If you're going to be an alternative, what you have is you have Tony Romo and everyone else in the NFL who are good commentators. If you want to have your own show and give it something different, you have to have these people that add to the show in a different way than just watching a normal football broadcast. Yeah. What do you then, think? Yeah. So I think uh, I'm, I'm curious because obviously, you know, a lot more about the stuff than I do about the whole broadcasting world and all that. I thought the Sue Bird was put in a really tough spot. You brought it up. You know, she follows Tom Brady. She's before Drew Brees. You know, I wonder when you guys like like you do with your company, when you're setting up interviews and shows and trying to get the content and with with guests and different programs and things like that, do you try and do like a, a sandwich, like throw a random person in between maybe two more uh, topics or guests in line? Or is that really just not fair to that person? How do you approach and, and, and fix those issues with what you guys do? So what I would try to do personally. So obviously there's two factors, scheduling, time, uh What's your factor there? If you have, if you can only get them on when you can get them on, that's one thing. If you have the choice, which I think they had a choice, do not sandwich somebody. You can't do good guest, good guest, bad guest, good guest. And I'm not saying Sue Bird is a bad guest, but comparatively, she's not Tom Brady. She's not Marshawn Lynch. She's not Drew Brees. You start out early with Sue Bird. Get it going. And that way, she's the first guest. She's probably fine. Then, maybe you heat up a little bit, get Marshawn Lynch in there. You might not have the greatest rapport with him because he's not a quarterback and he's not somebody you play with consistently. I'm sure they have much more time in with Brady and Breeze than they do with Marshawn Lynch. But Marshawn gets the jokes cracking, gets things fired up. Then, in my opinion, you go Drew Breeze. You do order your guests in order of you know, worst to first. You start with the worst one and work your way up. That way, whoever you start with, they are never compared to who they, you know, you can't compare Sue Bird to Tom Brady. That was a phenomenal segment. You can't compare them. So you keep doing, and I think you end with Tom Brady, but that's also tough because people are tuning out at that point. So I think maybe the segment Tom Brady in the third quarter, Drew Brees in the fourth quarter. Hit cornerstone guests, third quarter, everyone's probably around watching at that point uh but towards the fourth quarter people might be tuning out because it's getting late they have work school whatever so i i think that might be a decision you have to take into account so that's how i would do it personally well it's interesting you, you brought up worst to first I, I i think you and i both agree that that shows that emphasize that really specifically and, and boldly and declare it are really the best and the highest quality shows yeah, I like, mean, there's no doubt about it. If you have worst to first in your show or you take that mantra, you're going to be a successful show. 
Absolutely. Not just successful in, in, in terms of just viewership and, and things like that, but just overall quality, just elite level broadcasting performance is associated with worst to first. Absolutely. Uh, a few other things I wanted to touch on really quick, just some uh, funnier housekeeping things. Uh, we had Tom Brady this weekend through for his record 600th touchdown pass, but... Mike Evans decided to give his ball away to a random fan. I'm sure he didn't remember or know what touchdown that was. But luckily, a uh, equipment staff was able to go haggle with a fan for the return of said ball. And I think, you know, the ball was rumored to be worth around half a million dollars at auction. But the uh, fan, he ended up receiving... One Bitcoin valued around $62,000. He got two autographed jerseys and an autographed helmet from Tom Brady. An autographed jersey in game-worn cleats from Mike Evans. Season tickets for the rest of this season into the end of 2022. As well as a $1,000 credit towards the Buccaneers team store. What do you think? I, I think, you know... Being the guy who gave Brady back the game ball, being the good guy, the hero of the day, plus getting all that stuff is a pretty good deal. You know, it is a pretty good deal, but he made one mistake. He should have gotten the football and gotten the heck out of Dodge, right? Because if he leaves the stadium with the football, when he's negotiating the next day, it's not for one Bitcoin, it's for 10 Bitcoin. It's for Tom Brady's parking spot, right? He lost all his leverage when he hung around. Look, the Bucs were already winning big. Why not go home? You got the football. The Bucks are winning big. Go home, you know, and then make the deal the next day. You know, that's 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 investment device. That's investment advice. That's that's negotiating advice that I think this fan should take and, and take with him for the rest of his uh, rest of his fandom career. Um, speaking of careers and uh, arguably the rest of them, uh, John Gruden, you know, made a little bit of news this week talking about uh, talking to HBO saying that he has a resume, uh, talking about his resume in pro football, he has a resume 58 years long in pro football, and that the truth will come out. Uh, These are all obviously uh, very uh, challenging words from John Gruden, but I think the real question here is Gruden, who is 58 years old, announced his resume is 58 years uh, long of football. So the question here I have for you, is John Gruden the guy, that guy, that guy that uses his high school and middle school education on his resume. Oh yeah, absolutely. Uh, I think he puts 4.0 in elementary school from his grade point average factors that in there. Uh, I think he might put middle school class president on his resume. Maybe he was in the beta club. You never know. He absolutely does those things. Uh, He just seems like that guy to me. I I think he does it. I'm going to give you a lot of credit here for saying Gruden got a 4.0 in middle school. He kind of, I think that's a little aggressive. He reminds me more of a a three two guy, a, a three zero guy, a guy who uh, you know does good enough but doesn't do much better than that. Um, you have, I know you've got a few other potentially. You got any other uh, other uh, side stories in the NFL? Anything we should talk about? Two other things. Uh, we've already touched on these a lot, so we don't need to go too deep into them. But just on the surface, uh, the whole Dan Snyder Washington football team, Roger Goodell. Uh, state of that investigation, uh, Roger Goodell has come out and said they will not release the uh, findings from the Washington football team's invest- internal investigation. He said that 
the people would like to remain anonymous and therefore they asked for them to not release the statements made. And then the lawyer for 40 plus of those employees came out and said, this is absolutely false. That's not what we said at all, which, you know, we all pretty much figured that out. They're just trying to cover up as much as they can. But the fact they come out and say this, the fact that they do all of this, just don't say anything. It, it's all a load of BS. They're just trying to cover up as much as they possibly can. And it is kind of getting disheartening knowing that the owners are just have so much power, can control Goodell as their puppet, and are able to just hide any wrongdoing that they have done and turn to light any wrongdoing anyone else has done to kind of make things get blown over. Yeah, I, th- I think you and I talked about, a, you know, yesterday or maybe the day before is how brutally tough the NFL and Goodell was on a guy like Tom Brady with the whole deflate gate and how all of this suspicious emails and these very, very serious allegations from the Washington franchise and, and the NFL as a whole are just quietly swept under the rug. I mean, they, they drug Tom Brady's name through the mud, all these court cases, all that kind of stuff. And now we got a real allegation, serious deal. The NFL is just like, nah, trust us. It's all good. Don't worry about it. We, uh, we read all the emails. It's all fine. And, uh, everyone said we shouldn't release them anyway. So don't worry about it. Yeah. It's for the good of the people. Yeah. Yeah. It's really here. Anyway, and it's going on to more scandals and stuff. The Deshaun Watson story has taken an interesting turn. Uh, like we've already talked about this earlier in the year. We don't need to go too far into it, but like, like we said, they just have mishandled situations very poorly this year. They have not made a statement. What they have said, though, is that Goodell has come out and stated that Watson will not be put on the commissioner's exempt list, even if he's traded. No matter what, he can play right now, and they're not going to make a statement on it because they haven't had time. They haven't had the investigation hasn't cleared up enough. Uh, I think they're just trying to wait until it all eventually blows under the rug and they don't have to deal with it. But the more exciting part is sources have confirmed, and I don't know how true any of this is or is not, that Miami and Houston have agreed to a deal in principle for the trade of Watson, which I personally assume means that is packaged with Tua and some sort of first-round draft pick combination to uh, second-round picks, another first, something along those lines i feel like that would be what this package what do you think uh how do you think tua feels about all of this yeah obviously not good it, the guy is in his second year he's had a few injuries he's had a fight through he had to compete with fitzpatrick with, for playing time last year as a rookie look the, the dolphins have so many problems they've got one win they've lost you know every game since week one since they beat new england and they were lucky to win that one to be totally honest this is just in Trubisky and, and how you manage and grow young quarterbacks. This is exactly what you don't do, right? You've got a guy who's literally facing civil and potentially criminal allegations, very serious ones. You know, the NFL is, is, is getting involved in terms of, hey, we're not going to comment on it. He can play until some more investigation stuff goes on. So if he goes to Miami, you know, that cloud's going to be hanging over. The cloud's hanging over Houston. And Tua's just trying to get better as a passer on a team that's not very good. And, and he's going to deal with all this. He's got to answer these questions day in and day out. He's got to try and go out and get better with a team that stinks. It's not fair to Tua. And I think this really goes back to, I know I've hit on this a bunch, how much the organization uh, matters for these teams. You know, I always say my three things, organization head coach and quarterback. The organization in Miami right now is so bad. They're not providing a good structure for Tua to grow and develop. 
even if they trade Tua out and they get uh, Watson in, this team isn't magically a playoff team. They've got one win. Maybe they win four games instead of three this year. If they don't make that trade. Why would you make that trade and ruin Tua's career, at least in Miami? I feel bad for the guy. I don't know. You know, it's how are you supposed to get better at the office if you know they're actively bringing in the guy to replace you after they just brought you in last year, you know, Tua being a rookie last year? It's a tough situation. You know, I've, I really feel for Tua because he seems like such a nice guy and a good fit for a lot of locker rooms. Yeah, I, I completely agree with you. And it's tough. It's very tough. Uh, you know, I feel for him. And I hope they get all of this settled so he can know uh, what is going to come about. But that's all I have on those. Do you have anything else you'd like to touch on before we move on to our trivia section? No, I'm ready for you. What do you got for me? All right. Uh, like I always say, I'm not sure. This will either be easy or hard. Depends. But I have a feeling it's going to be easy, circumstances aside. All right. Are you ready, Nick? Let's do it. Who was the first player ever voted as Super Bowl MVP while playing for the losing team? So this is great, right? So this is Dallas in Super Bowl five against the Baltimore Colts. Dallas lost 16 to 13 in a game that was called the Blunder Bowl because there were so many turnovers. Obviously, 16 to 13 is a low scoring game. So you're thinking defense. The MVP of the game was Chuck Howley, linebacker for Dallas had, a, I think, a fumble recovery, an interception, and a bunch of tackles. He had a great day. You know, Baltimore kind of lucked their way into the, the victory over Dallas. So, uh, But the answer you're looking for is Chuck Halley uh, for Dallas. I figured if it was a Dallas question, uh, you'd be pretty on it pretty quickly. I didn't know how far back and if I got too specific. But uh, I'll note that for future. But that's good. You got it real fast. I'm very impressed. Very impressed. So uh, I, think, I think that's good. And I think that's warmed us up. And we talked about defense defensive player winning Super Bowl MVP doesn't happen too often but that leads us to our deep dive segment of defensive base schemes 3-4 defense versus 4-3 defense which one is superior why are they used and why is one better than the other so uh what I say um we want to start with the 4-3 defense uh, explain it a little bit. I can try to explain them at their base levels, and then I'll let you get into, uh, you're the expert on this. Uh, I'll let you explain why they're used and why one may be better than the other. Sure. Absolutely. Why don't you, yeah, like you said, why don't you get us going with the schematic look, uh, base structure and I'll, and I'll kind of hammer out the details. All right. Starting up, we have our base four, three defense on the screen. Now, um, this is, is a defense that, in its essence, it is four down linemen, usually two defensive tackles in the center. Then you have two defensive in edge rush type personnel on the ends. Then you have your middle linebacker, your weak side, and your strong side outside linebackers on either side. And that is the base formation you have there. Typically, those defensive ends... Maybe one's a run stopper, one's a pass rusher. There could be a combination depending on what uh, down you're at. But uh, you have some beef in the middle. Your linebackers, you have a little bit more uh, play. And you're going to have your corners and your safeties back there as well. Uh, now, I also have written down teams. There's a divide. 
Who uses what, okay? Teams that use the 4-3 now. I believe Dallas has now adopted the 4-3. Miami Dolphins use a 4-3. The New York Giants are using a 4-3. Atlanta Falcons, the Raiders, the LA Rams, Minnesota Vikings, Chicago Bears, Carolina Panthers, Cincinnati Bengals, Jacksonville Jaguars, Tennessee Titans, Detroit Lions. One, that uh, they kind of are a hybrid more defense. New Orleans Saints, they go back and forth between either one. They are known for a 3-4 and a 4-3, depending on the year, depending on uh, the situation. As well as Baltimore. Baltimore is a hybrid defense. Uh, they consistently, during the game, go in between 3-4, 4-3. I think primarily they do a 3-4, though. Uh, Tampa Bay is a 4-3 defense. New England, Seattle, and Denver are all the 4-3 defenses that I have. Yeah, and, and you're exactly right in the, the schematic layout. And, and you know, to go in a little more detail of what the 4-3 is and the, the basic concepts behind it. And, and, you know, you hit on beef in the middle, right? And the whole point of that defensive lineman, four down defensive lineman, is that you have four of the five gaps. And when I say gaps, I mean the literal gap between offensive linemen. So you have your center and you have your two guards and then your two tackles, okay? You see them on the screen in the blue circles. And the goal of the 4-3 defense is to put guys in gaps so they can penetrate and make plays. So one of the reasons a lot of teams in the NFL use a 4-3 these days is because their personnel dictates it. What I mean by that is they have disruptive defensive players in those key positions that can line up in those gaps and make plays. A phenomenal example is Aaron Donald with the Los Angeles Rams. He'll play that defensive tackle inside, and he can get up in that gap and blow up plays. Right. So that ability to create, put guys in gaps by default for defensive linemen in those gaps at the snap to get up the field, get penetration and blow up and disrupt an offense is one of the main points of the four three. Right. It's gap control, penetration and playmaking. You know, you have those three linebackers in the back because you have more beef with four defensive linemen. These linebackers got to be a little smaller, a little faster, more athletic, especially those two outside guys, because they got to run. They got to get out in space and they got to cover more. Look, you got four down defensive linemen, and all four of them will pass rush if it's a passing play at all times. The offensive lineman knows this. They see those four. The the quarterback knows this, so he knows who's going to be in coverage, who's rushing or not. There may be some blitzes going on, but he knows at minimum he's facing four pass rushers. That kind of limits a little bit of the uh, defense's flexibility. With that in mind, you need, like I said, fast linebackers who can get out in space and cover. The other side of the 4-3 that's important is while the defensive lineman can line up in gaps and control that gap better, it also gives the offensive lineman angles. So a good example is if you look at the screen, you can see the center in the middle of the screen. If he wants to block that defensive tackle directly to his left, he's got the angle to do it, right? He's, he knows which he knows where the defender is, knows where to put his hands in his body to get the defender wherever he wants them. You know, so from that perspective, all the offensive linemen are able to identify where their blocking assignment is and generally what gap they are responsible for, and they're able to use those angles against them to help better execute the offense. So there's that trade-off. You have the defense that is the ability to put playmakers in gaps to disrupt, but the flip side of it, the offense knows what gaps those defensive players are in, and they can use angles to that advantage to help them. So, uh, Mize, if you've got nothing to add on 4-3, do you want to go ahead and move to uh, the 3-4? Yes, I have one quick question for you. Maybe you can clarify something. Sure. Do you think the more heavily use of tight ends 
in the league nowadays has led to a broader use of the 4-3 scheme, giving you, you know, people have tight ends, bigger tight ends, more blocking tight ends out there nowadays. Do you think that's helped at all have people progress towards a 4-3 versus 3-4? Uh, so it's actually the opposite. Because remember, if you've got a, tie, a defensive end who's a good pass rusher and a tight end lines up to his side, that defensive end will have to line up you know, one gap farther outside. So if you look at the screen and imagine there's a third blue dot on the right, that red triangle at the defensive end has to shift one more out outside of him. So you've actually created more distance between the quarterback and your defensive end, which is obviously not ideal uh, for getting pass rush, for getting pressure on that quarterback, for getting a good pass rush. Also, that tight end has the ability to chip, which means at the snap of a football, shove that defensive end, hit him a little bit to disrupt the pass rush even more. So actually, that tight end is actually kind of a reason to almost not use a 4-3 in the traditional sense because it makes it harder for that defensive end to get to the quarterback. That makes sense. Uh, yeah, that the more you explain it, that makes sense. Let's move on to our 3-4 now we on the screen you can see we have a 3-4. What a 3-4 is at the base scheme level is in the middle is probably your biggest guy, your nose tackle, uh, a hefty run run stopper, maybe not as much of a pass rusher. He's really there to, I guess, in essence, maybe try to plug up two holes if he can. Then on either side of the that guy are your two defensive ends, which are pass rush, maybe somewhat, but they're typically also bigger defensive ends. Maybe one is more of a pass rusher, one's a run blocker, but they really have to be run stop defensive ends because in the backside, we now have two middle linebackers as well as two outside linebackers. And in my mind, when I think of 3-4, those two outside linebackers are now moving down to be more of the pass rush. Because in Baltimore, our outside linebackers being Odafe Owe, Justin Houston, they're our main pass rushers on the off or defensive line, so to speak. Uh, and our middle linebackers are more into coverage. Uh, they kind of take the place of all three of the four three linebackers. They're more coverage-based linebackers. Uh, and the two guys on the outside linebacker position are more pass rushers. And really quickly, I will go through teams that are currently using more of a 3-4 base scheme. Uh, Arizona uses a 3-4, Indianapolis, Los Angeles Chargers, Kansas City, New Orleans, as they use both, uh, New York Jets, Green Bay Packers, Philadelphia Eagles, Baltimore uses both, Cleveland Browns, San Francisco 49ers, Pittsburgh Steelers, Washington football team, and Houston. Yeah, and, and the, like what you said, where the, your first guy to start with the structure of the defense, it begins and ends with that nose tackle in the middle. And you brought up a great point. His job a lot of times is to take up two gaps. They call it, You'll see that sometimes on broadcasts. Like he's a two-gap player. What that means is unlike the 4-3 where the defender lines up in a gap and penetrates and disrupts the play at the beginning of the snap, a 3-4 defensive lineman, specifically a nose tackle in this case, engages with the offensive lineman at the snap and tries to read the play and read the direction and just try and shift to take up two gaps. 
Now, that's obviously pretty hard to do. So usually what that means is these guys are monsters. They're huge. They got a few extra LBs. Google Vince Wolfork if you're not sure what I mean. That's exactly uh, when I think of a 3-4 defensive tackle. I think old school New England Patriots 3-4 defense Vince Wilfork. He might even be a three-gap player. Yeah, I, I, these guys, you know, you, good Baltimore guy for you is Tony Siragusa back in the early 2000s. Oh, yeah. You know, these guys take up a lot of space. They're designed to try and play two gaps at once. These are not pass rushers. They are there just to take up space, control both of those gaps right next to the center. You'll, you'll hear those called a lot of times the two A gaps, A being closest to the center. Moving out to those two defensive ends, you hit the nail right on the head. Just like you said, they're usually bigger defensive ends because they got to block head up against offensive tackles, right? They're not the defensive ends in a 4-3 that are outside and have a little more space to work with. They're head up. So they got to play the run. A lot of time these guys are slanting, and that means angling one gap to another at the snap to kind of disrupt the offense that way. Uh, but they still have to deal head up at least very early on with that offensive tackle. And then you move out to the outside linebackers. A lot of times you'll hear phrases like hybrid or tweener. What that means is a guy who's maybe a little too uh, not quite big enough to play defensive end in a 4-3, but not quite fast enough to be a linebacker in a 4-3. It's the 3-4 outside linebacker. These guys are pass rushers. These guys can cover a little too, but they're sort of just really, really uh, big linebackers or a little smaller defensive ends. You know, this is the DeMarcus Wares. This is the Von Millers. This is those kind of guys like, you know, Justin Houston, you brought up a great example. These are the guys that play defensive end essentially, but they're standing up. They're rushing the passer like that. And inside your two linebackers here, they got to be a little beefier because they have to deal with a lot of those offensive guards, those two blue dots in the middle to the left of the right of the center from getting up to them and blowing them off a of football in a run play in a run situation. So to the big difference between the 3-4, which we're seeing now in the 4-3, is that while the 4-3, the offensive lineman had angles, the defensive linemen were lined up in gaps, remember? Here, the 3-4, the offensive linemen have no angles. They have to deal with the defense straight on. If that tackle has to block that outside linebacker, that's a lot of space to run out and go get him. If that center has to block that nose guard, he doesn't know where he's going. What, what you know, he's a there is no angle that he's got to get to him or or any angle or, or or leverage he can use against him. He's got to face him straight up. So it creates a lot of challenges for blocking schemes and offensive linemen interacting that, which uh, I would like to go in a little bit. Mize, I don't know if you had a question or anything first before we get into that. Yeah, one quick thing and you have a lot of great examples we're going to get to. You tell me what to put up next. Um, but one thing I would like to ask is, typically in my mind, as a good, I'd say I'm a decent football fan. I know enough, but I don't know quite as much schematically like you do. When I typically think of a 3-4 defense, and tell me, maybe this is right, maybe this is wrong. I feel like the guys in a 3-4, they get after the ball. They have more clearly defined pass rushers. Uh, typically, like when I'm thinking three fours, I think those outside linebackers, are they almost like either coverage or pure pass rusher? Like I'm thinking Tom Bahali's, I'm thinking uh, Justin Houston. A lot of uh, Kansas City's had some great uh, outside linebackers. I'm thinking Trell Suggs. I'm thinking, uh, you know, so many guys that uh, LA Chargers, Joey Bosa's, your uh, 49ers, Nick Bosa, uh, Washington football team, Chase Young. And Chase Young's maybe getting more towards a 4-3 um, type of defensive end because he's a big guy who can also stop the run. But is that, I feel like 3-4s, your outside linebackers or defensive ends, what it, 
that would be in a 4-3, they're more pass rusher than they are run stopper, like a, a 4-3 D-end God kind of has to do both. Yeah, you're exactly right. So a 4-3, there's not a huge difference in terms of, you know, how you have to play between the four defensive linemen, you know, in a very high level. You know, you have your hand in the ground. You have a gap responsibility, right, where you line up. You know, you have to, you know, you're, you're responsible for uh, your gaps and you got to make sure you, you don't lose uh, lose that integrity. You know, you've, you've got priorities to stop the run and the pass, you know, you don't have a lot of space between you and the offensive lineman in a lot of cases. So there's a lot of hand fighting. It's a much more physical game. When you get to those three, four outside linebackers, like you talked about, they have more room to, uh, to uh, play. They have more space between them, and the offensive lineman. So that's why you see a lot of really talented athletic pass rushers kind of gravitate towards that role, because if they don't have to fight off offensive tackles in the run game and they don't have to worry so much about gap responsibility, they get to use their incredible athletic ability in space. So you talk about when you hear on broadcasters, they talk about playing in space like a receiver or running back. That's essentially what those outside linebackers are doing, but they're not doing it with the ball in their hands. They're doing it trying to get after the quarterback. These are just that level of athlete. They're just trying to make that offensive lineman essentially miss by getting around him and getting to the quarterback. So like you said, you know, you brought up a great point. A lot of times those outside linebackers, those are the most pure, you know, pass rush specialists that you'll find in pro football. And that's good. And I think the reason for that is because in the three, four, you have to think up a lot more exotic blitz packages and some packages that you have drawn up for our viewing pleasure. Let's go. The first one, I believe, do you have your basic man on man? Yeah, so when I have man-on-man here on the image, that's more of an indication of the offensive lineman's blocking scheme. I was an offensive lineman, so that's kind of the mentality that I take to how I draw these things up. And what you see right here is you see a 3-4, and I'm going to talk about, you know, like Mize talked about, uh, using a 3-4 and the more exotic blitzes. So this is a lot of what you'll see more standard pass rushes out of a 3-4. You see that left outside linebacker, that pure pass rusher, he's blitzing up the field. So he's man-on-man with that left tackle. You have that defensive end just inside of him. He's man-on-man with that left guard. You see that center uh, man-on-man with the nose tackle. And you see that right guard and that right tackle. They're man-on-man with those two outside guys. Now, the the far outside linebacker, he's not coming. So those two are responsible for that defensive end. So looking at this is sort of a standard way teams picked up the 3-4 when the 3-4 first came into the fold, really in the 1980s uh, with those great New York Giants teams with Lawrence Taylor. And what a lot of teams found is they couldn't block uh, linebackers like Lawrence Taylor with running backs or tight ends. So they'd make sure to go man-on-man with offensive linemen. So they would get those offensive linemen, like you see here, that left tackle and left guard out in space a little bit more to try and block those guys. Well, defenses got smart and realized, hey, if you know, there's a lot of gaps here that when they go man on man that they can take advantage of. So if you go to uh, the next slide, Mize, where I uh, the Real MLB quick, quick question, just for I, I looking at this, I have a question. I have or something's popped into my head. So we see this right outside linebacker. He's either going to be in man coverage or drop back in a zone. It looks like he's not coming. Correct. So this uh, defensive end over here that the right tackle is picking up seems like maybe he picks him up. That big guy in the middle, is this right guard going to, is he going to gravitate towards the center and help the center? Is he help the right tackle or is it really just depends? So, so usually what happens in a three, four is there's the offensive tackle, depending on the alignment and nine times out of 10, this is what happens. 
Um, the offensive tackle will make a call to his offensive guard to say, hey, I'm going to go wider in case that outside linebacker comes. I need you to come close to me to look for this defensive end. Right. Because, But funny story with that. So one time in practice in college, I knew just because I, I basically I heard the defensive calls and I wasn't an idiot. I knew that outside linebacker wasn't coming and I knew that defensive lineman in front of me was. And so I didn't make that call. So cause, just because I kind of knew I was kind of cheating drill a little bit. Well, our guard was so used to hearing that call because you hear it, it. It's called 99% of the time because you really don't know if that guy's not coming or not. I could just read and tell that he wasn't. So I didn't make that call. So I go to block the defensive lineman in front of me. Like you see, like that right tackle on the screen is doing there. And, and, and the guard comes and just runs right into me and it, the play blows up. It's really bad. He gets all mad at me. Why didn't you make the call? Why didn't you make the call? It's like, he's not coming. He's not coming. It's like, how'd you know? How'd you know? He, you know, he could have been coming. It's like, well, no, I, I, you know, I, I kind of cheated, but I, I, I knew. Anyway. Sound, sounds like a Mabry thing to me. Uh, it's actually a good Fink story. Good, uh, good old classic Robert Fink story. Fink. All right. Uh, I think next up, let's see, we have our, MLB Fire Blitz package. MLB, yeah, MLB Fire. So, if, so uh, the first slide you saw how the uh, the man on man, the two offensive linemen on the left slid out. That opened up a big gap. So when the offensive tackle and the offensive guard slide out, like I just talked about, defenses got smart and said, "We'll just blitz that middle linebacker, and he'll get a clean shot right at the quarterback, and the running backs then got to pick him up right in the hole." That's definitely a mismatch. And that absolutely devastates offenses, right? You, you talk about uh, quarterbacks always talk about how they hate pressure right in their face. This is automatic right at the snap pressure right in your face. This is either a sack or a throwaway or just a kill shot on the quarterback. This is not what offenses want to deal with at all. So to counter this, offenses decided we can't, we can't leave that, uh, those two gaps, those two A gaps, like I talked about, unprotected. So what we're going to do is we're going to do what's called a slide protection. We're going to slide one way or the other. So before, actually, before I go on, Mice, do you have any questions about what you're seeing here? No, this one's right. so, yeah. straight so go, Yep, so go ahead and go to the slide. Slide. And what, yep, and you can see now all the offensive linemen are sliding to the left, and the fullback, the F there, is going to the right to pick up the edge. And you can see now they have offensive linemen protecting both A gaps, getting that middle linebacker and handling everything to that side. And even though that fullback is one-on-one -on -one with that defensive end on the right, that's actually not a bad situation because that fullback can cut block him or get his hands down real quick. And remember, the quarterbacks are usually right-handed. So if that defensive end to the right is one-on-one -on -one with the fullback as he's slanting outside, as he's angling outside, the quarterback sees it, right? It's not his blind side and it's not right in his face. So he can react either by stepping up or scrambling outside of that if he needs to. So the big point here is to be able to protect the gaps, either the quarterback's blind side and the gaps right in front of the quarterback's face. So he has time to make a throw down the field or at least clear up the picture. And in this situation, I, I think it's situational per team, but usually more experienced quarterbacks like Brady or Rogers will call slide protection and on less experienced teams, maybe the center makes that call? Yeah, so it really depends. Uh, veteran quarterbacks will call it protections 99 times out of 100. Uh, if it's a younger quarterback, he may rely on his center or, or another player to make that protection make that protection call. But, but really, uh, a lot of the protection calls are predetermined by the play, right? So you may call, hey, we're doing a whatever they call the play, the, the, the verbiage of it will be a slide protection. 
And then the quarterback or, you know, usually the quarterback in that case, but it may be the center may make a, you know, a left or right slide call, you know, at this line of scrimmage. So sometimes you'll hear it on the broadcast, you know, Louie, 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 or Ricky, Ricky Ringo, Ricky Ringo, you know, left or right to slide that protection one way or the other. Uh, Usually they won't change to a slide at the line of scrimmage like an audible because it's just too much for offensive linemen, especially when they're that big, to have to react in their stance and change their footwork up a little bit. It's just too risky. So So the slides predetermine which side it goes to may be changed at the line, or that's really the only change. They're not going to change to a slide protection right off the bat. That's a little more difficult. Yeah, it's it's definitely more difficult. It, it, It... it does happen, but it, usually that's not what they like to do, right? They usually like to just flip the player, make quick, easy changes. You know, you'll see a, a quarterback will, will maybe make a hot read call or something, and he's just changing one route, or he may change slide the protection. You know, when you hear audibles at the line of scrimmage, it's usually very, very simple. Very rarely is it a whole new complex play because it's just it's just too much to process in just too short a period of time. And what what's our last? So let's go to our last slide. So this is the uh, the defense's response to a slide protection, and that's two edge rushers. This is both outside linebackers rushing, and this basically is the reason NFL teams don't use slide protections against three fours anymore because this absolutely gets quarterbacks killed. You got a running back one on one with a premier pass rusher off the edge coming right at the quarterback. Running back has no chance. Right. And not only does the running back one on one, you've got your left tackle is one on one blind side, your left guard one on one blind side, your center and your right guard are just, you know, they've got that they're uh, responsible for their gaps there. So they've got really, you know, no ability to help and get out and help those two guys. So it just creates one on one matchups. Your premier pass rushers one on one matchups all going right to the quarterback. It's a really, really bad protection to be in. This is not a situation any quarterback wants. This is, you know, when you see a lot of situations like this, this is when quarterbacks like to go hot read and get the ball out of their hands very, very quickly. Um, any questions on this before I kind of go into a little bit more why we don't see as much 3-4 anymore? Uh, no, I think we got it. That was a very good explanation. Thank you. Well, uh, yeah. now, so I guess what we're about to talk about next is Really, and this is my very brief opinion, and I think you can expound off this. So what I've gathered from your expert analysis is it seems to me that a 4-3 is a little bit easier to play. It seems a 3-4, you have to have better athletes, better players overall, better pass rushers. And if you do have the scheme, then maybe it's going to be a little bit better for you if you have the personnel for that scheme. But overall... Playing a 4-3 style of defense for the defense seems a little bit easier. It 100, 100% is. So you look at the really good defenses that, that have ran 3-4s. We brought up New England, right? Very well coached, fundamentally sound, versatile players. Baltimore, very well coached, fundamentally sound, versatile players, right? It, you have to have players that understand, you know, how they can, uh, you know, react as the play goes on, how they can react to to certain situations and, and, and understand different blitz packages and understand, Hey, look, I'm not, blitz, I may be blitzing this play, but I'm not going to blitz next play. Or I may be going this way, this play, but I may be going the other way next play. And a four, three, it's much more, I line up in my gap and that's where I go. And it's much easier to teach and much easier to understand, obviously because of that. But at the same time, like I just talked about the three, four, gives you a little bit more flexibility 
for exotic blitzes with your linebackers and defensive linemen combinations. And I think uh, traditionally, maybe higher blitzing teams like to run a 3-4. You hear Blitzburg, you know, Baltimore likes to bring the house. I, it infuriates me, cover zero, like every play. Uh, you know, these teams that maybe have a little bit more exotic blitz packages, they're typically running a 3-4 defense because it seems like it gives them more opportunities to blitz in more exotic ways. Yeah, because the whole point of when you're blitzing, right, is just to confuse the offensive lineman's protection. Because, you know, well, confuse and create one-on-ones, which you can do really well with a 3-4. Uh, confusion is – it's really not that hard because, like I talked about in the base picture, because all the defensive linemen and linebackers are, are sort of lined up head-on, you really don't have a good angle and indication of how they're going to start. So the offensive lineman is usually reacting and they got to be very, you know, they got to be with it. They got to understand what gaps they have or what man they have and watch out for all these exotic blitzes. And it's a lot happening very, very quickly. And it creates a lot of challenges for the protection. Yeah. And it just, just seems like you said, much more challenging if you can do it right, but it's just easier overall to play that four, three. You have any final points that you want to, yeah, so I think my big point is the fact that we're seeing a lot less of 3-4 defenses in the NFL. And the reason is because, and this really started with the 2007 Patriots when they got big with Wes Welker and slot receivers started coming in the NFL, is that instead of trying to pick up all these pass rushers with offensive linemen and, and running backs and getting protection set up, you know, Brady and the Patriots and other teams quickly caught on to this. Well, they, they thought, well, we'll just line up a wide receiver who's quick and shifty, who linebackers and safety can't cover. So we put them in the slot. You know, you're either going to take your linebacker and cover them. That's a mismatch. Or you're going to bring your safety down and cover them. And that's also a mismatch. And so with New England and teams like that really started beating up teams that ran a 3-4 that did that. And it even didn't matter if they were running exotic blitzes or pass rushes because the ball was out of the hand so quickly because it was such a short, quick route out of the slot. So what that forced teams to do is to take a pass rusher off the field and try and bring in another corner to cover them. Well, you take a pass rusher off the field, your ability to run exotic blitzes just takes a hit, right? That's one fewer guy that can blitz. And then teams just start shifting more and more to a base 4-3 look because then you at least knew you had four pass rushers and you didn't have to worry about, okay, what's a, you know, you'd have to think of even more and more complex ways to blitz with one fewer pass rusher. The numbers just didn't work out very well. So starting back with the 2007 Patriots, and it really continues with spread offenses to this day, teams are more and more gun-shy about playing the 3-4 unless they're really well-coached and have a really good talent uh, and a lot of depth on that defensive uh, defensive line and linebackers to be able to do it. Because otherwise, it's just too hard. There's too many chances for giving up big plays, too many chances for quick passes going into big plays. It's much safer and easier with these spread offenses and slot-wide receivers to run a 4-3 or a similar kind of front. All right, and I think uh, this leads us perfectly into our next segment. Like we said, the premier segment of all premier shows, our worst to first segment of the last bastion of the 3-4 minus one team, the AFC North, it seems, uh, that everyone in the AFC North, maybe outside of the Bengals, is still holding on to that uh, 3-4 defense in some capacity. Uh, We got Pittsburgh Steelers, Cleveland Browns, Cincinnati Bengals, and the Baltimore Ravens. Nick, uh, I have it set up. Do you want to start off this one for us, and I'll start off the next one for us? 
Sure. I'll, I'll get us going. So number four for me, it's Pittsburgh Steelers. This team's right around 500. You know, they, they're playing okay. They're not playing great. I don't think they're a playoff team. You know, kudos to Mike Tomlin for coaching like he is because he's got Ben Roethlisberger at quarterback, who I'm pretty sure if he takes more than two steps on a play, he falls down and collapses, you know, just telescoping over. Like the guy can't move at all. You know, they can't run play actions or bootlegs or anything like that because of his lack of mobility. I, I just think they're really, really limited because of this. I think they're going to be a decent team. They're not a playoff team. They're fourth in the division. Uh, number three for me is Cleveland. This is a talented, talented roster, but they're held back by the quarterback position. I like the gutsy way they played a bad Denver team. They were so beat up and they still found a way to win that game. Good running backs, good offensive line, solid def- uh, solid uh, front seven on defense. They've got enough players to be a playoff team. I think they could sneak in. They're limited by Baker Mayfield. I have them at number three. Number two for me, and this may hurt you a little bit, Mize, I got Baltimore. Look, Lamar Jackson has taken huge steps this season with big monster performances, including the monster comeback against the Colts on Monday Night Football. Absolutely great leaps for him as he grows as a passer. Kudos to Greg Roman and Harbaugh on that coaching staff for improving him. Kudos to Lamar Jackson for working on it. I just think right now with that loss, that devastating loss, you know, at home to, to uh, Cincinnati, they got to lick their wounds a little bit and, and, and kind of recoup. This is a playoff team. They're a contender, but right now I can't put them at number one because I got to put Cincinnati at number one. They just beat who I thought coming into the weekend was the best team in the AFC and they beat them handily. We already talked about Jamar Chase. We talked about Joe Burrow. Let's talk about the Cincinnati defense, right? They brought in Shadobia Wuzier in the offseason at cornerback. That defense, they're not great, but they're better. They're forcing some turnovers. They're getting off the field. Joe Mixon in that running game. Jamar Chase, you brought up uh, Higgins at wide receiver, the other wide receiver. Burrow at quarterback. Burrow's been gutsy. He's been tough. He's making big plays. He's, he's, he's you know, staying in the pocket. He's getting beat up, but he's playing hard. You know, I really like Cincinnati. You know, Zach Taylor's their head coach. I've never even seen Zach Taylor. I'm starting to wonder if he even actually, you know, even exists because we just never really see him, never hear from him or anything like that. But, you know, this Cincinnati team, they're playing the best they've played in a long time, and that's why I have them at number one. I think uh, traditionally that's been Cincinnati's coaches' uh, forte is being quiet. Uh, they kind of like to stick in the background, maybe go 8-8. Eight and eight. You know, every season you don't hear from them too much. Uh, but history of mediocrity seems like they're moving away from there. And I mostly agree with you. In my number four spot, I also have the Pittsburgh Steelers because they kind of suck right now. Uh, Big Ben is really their biggest issue. Uh, They've gotten banged up on defense a little bit. That's also hurt them. The one thing I will say is after all things that have happened with him, a former Pittsburgh player, Antonio Brown says the Steelers were the problem, says Ben was the problem, says the wide receiver room was the problem. He called Juju out a couple of times. Okay, that's not very nice. Why is he doing that? Then what happens? A.B. moves to Oakland at the time, Raiders. Obviously, something was going on there that he didn't like, enough to the point where he's decided to do some crazy stuff to get out of Oakland. Okay? Then, once A.B. finally parts ways with John Gruden and the Raiders, he meets back up with Tom Brady. He's been a model citizen since then. Haven't heard a peep out of A.B. Maybe he was right. I mean, it turns out maybe he was right about the Raiders. There could have been some stuff going on. Maybe it wasn't quite the organization to be in. And one thing I've noticed, 
is Juju Smith-Schuster has been horribly underperforming ever since Antonio Brown left. Uh, they did trade away James Conner. He seems to be pretty strong in the Arizona offense. Ben has severely underperformed in the last two seasons. I think it's time to move on from him. Defensively, the Steelers haven't done as well as they have traditionally. Uh, Minka Fitzpatrick heavily, heavily underperformed this season after a standout performance last season. All of these things factor together. They're definitely in the bottom of a very, very tough AFC North division. I think there's three, four teams in here that have a chance if you let them to make the playoffs. Uh, in my number two spot, I have the Cleveland Browns. We've talked about this extensively on and off screen. They have a great team, all-star roster, held back by the quarterback. Did they kidnap him? Is he in the the Brown Stadium making commercials like like a slave driver? Just they have him in behind the scenes, just constantly filming the commercials and stunt doubles out there playing quarterback. Who knows? I don't know, but the, he really, really has underperformed this season. He's underperformed the last few seasons. Uh, they need to make a decision whether they're going to stick with him or not. If they do, I think they need to pay him less than premier money. And so they can build up the team around him because he's not getting the job done. In my number two spot, because I'm stubborn, I'm going to put the Cincinnati Bengals. Uh, they probably deserve to be in the number one spot, but I just can't do it. Uh, they have a great team. They have made leaps and bounds differences from last year. They seem to have all the receivers. They seem to have all the running backs. They're healthy on both sides of the ball. The defense looks phenomenal uh, from where they have come. I think they're doing a really great job. They're in my number two spot. Number one. Obviously, my favorite team, Baltimore Ravens, number one, and here's why. They've done the most with the least. We've lost everyone. We've lost our corners. We are out our defensive end. We've lost some of our pass rushers on defense. We've lost our starting middle linebacker on defense. We've lost all three of our starting running backs. For most of the season, our starting uh, receiver was out. He just came back really uh, two weeks ago, started getting in. Our main blocking tight end, our number two guy, Nick Boyle, has been out for the whole season. He's coming back later. Uh, Ronnie Stanley, starting left tackle, has been out for most of the season. Last game, Pat, uh, Patrick McCarry, our starting right tackle, went out against the Bengals. So we've hodgepodge together. We've been competitive. And I am, just so I could put Baltimore in my first spot, looking to the future, I think down the stretch, this bye week this week is crucial for them to lick their wounds, as you say, get healthier, come back. I think in the end, they're going to come out on top of this ASC North division. They're going to get stronger as the year goes on, and teams better watch out because they may have looked a little bit vulnerable against the Bengals. They've looked vulnerable against the Lions. they looked vulnerable against the Raiders. But I think they haven't even hit close to what they could be this season. I think as they go on, as they get healthier – as your Derek Wolfs come back into the rotation, as some of these uh, offensive linemen get a little bit healthier, I think they're going to build, they're going to get stronger, and they're going to come back better than ever towards the end of the season. Yeah, so I, I think the craziest thing about this division was, and, and I should have looked it up, was what are the odds that the Cincinnati Bengals would be number one in the AFC through seven games? That's That's just an unbelievable story. For a, for a team and a franchise that's been absolutely a dumpster fire for a number of years. You know, I, I obviously you can't root for them as very much because being a Baltimore fan, but I think it's a it's an incredible story. But I agree with you to the point. I think Baltimore ends up winning the division. I think Cincinnati's a better team right now. 
but I don't know how they'll handle success down the stretch. Baltimore knows how to handle it. I, I think they have a definitely have a chance to make a deeper playoff run than Cincinnati. But uh, one thing Cincinnati doesn't have that I knocked them pretty heavily. They have a pretty weak offensive line when yeah. it's at full strength, and it's really a detriment to Joe Burrow. He takes a lot of nasty hits. Obviously, he got hurt pretty bad in his rookie season. They haven't done much to bolster it. Uh, they drafted him wide receiver. It's paying off. I mean, the receiver's good, but he's still taking hit after hit after hit. Baltimore did get killed in that game. Cincinnati, to this point, probably should be in first place in my power rankings, but I just can't do it. But watching that game, as bad as they were winning, Burrow is getting clobbered over, and I think Justin Houston got to him at least five or six times, maybe got two sacks, but he got at least five or six quarterback hits. Burrow's getting killed out there. I don't know how much longer he can take this. I mean, if they want this guy, he seems like a great quarterback, seems like the future of the franchise, better than anyone else has been in a while as far as rookies go, or second-year guy, but you got to protect him. I, I think he should be a national treasure in Cincinnati. They need to bolster that line, and I think Penny Sewell, uh, the offensive lineman they passed on, I think he was looking pretty darn good. I believe he went to the Detroit Lions. Uh, I I think he would have been a good pickup for them, but obviously Chase was a good pickup as well. We're we're grasping at straws at this point. Yeah, speak, speaking of grasping and uh, getting guys that could maybe block and help Burrow out a bit, you uh you want to lead into our top five of uh of this week's show? Absolutely. One of my favorite positions all time. This week, we have top five tight ends. My personal favorite positions in all of football. Tight ends, fullbacks. I like a good pass-catching fullback. I like a good hybrid blocking pass-catching tight end. Uh, I will get us started off here, okay? Uh, in my number five slot. Get our graphics booted up here. In my number five shot spot. I have Dalton Schultz of the Dallas Cowboys. Really, really stood out to me this season so far. He's been a phenomenal pass catcher. Uh, he's been pretty good in the blocking game, and he's been very productive as an outlet safety blanket for Dak. I really think he's kind of coming in and filling the shoes of Jason Witten. And I, there's some, I will go into it. There's someone on this list who I have to use the body of work, but being such a young player, he has really come out and impressed me so, so much so far this season. In my number four spot, I have Darren Waller of the Las Vegas Raiders. A little, hurts my heart a little. He was a Baltimore guy, had some addiction issues. We tried to help him in and out of rehab. He couldn't find a way to get clean. He moves over to Oakland at the time, now Las Vegas. He finds himself. He finds his uh, his will again to play football. He overcomes addiction. Great story. He's inspiring that team. And now he's become one of the premier pass-catching tight ends in the NFL, bar none. I mean, he's Derek Carr's, I would say, number one target. Uh, he's one of the best players on the field when Oakland goes out. And I think he's been a very, very good tight end. He's been a very, very good pass catcher. And he's been a decent run and pass blocking tight end. In my number three slot, 
I have Travis or um excuse me, George Kittle of the San Francisco 49ers. He has had a pretty down year, but so has San Francisco. So in his body of work that I know him to have, he is an elite tight end. He has some very good blocking skills, very good pass catching skills. You can't really look at his stats for this season. I think he only has 200 something receiving yards, but San Francisco as a whole has had a very down year, but historically George Kittle is one of the best tight ends. I think he's always in the talks of top three tight end in the NFL ever since he's gotten to the league. All these Iowa guys seem to be doing pretty well. This leads me to my number two spot. Some may say I'm biased. I personally do not think that I am. Mark Andrews. He is the best blocking tight end on this list. His ratings are off the chart through the run game, through the pass game. Mark Andrews is one of the best blocking tight ends. Couple that with him and my number one are tied back and forth, neck and neck, just a few yards off. I think uh, Travis Kelsey has passed him a little bit. Are tied for receiving yards uh, of tight ends this year. They both have been phenomenal pass catchers, but I'd give the edge overall to Kelsey for his whole body of work. But Mark Andrews, he has really developed into be a great blocker, a great pass catcher, and he's number one target on Baltimore's team as they've been hurt uh, with Rashad Bateman out. And he's really proven himself this season. I'm very happy to have him on my team. My number one pick, Travis Kelsey. Best tight end in the NFL over the last few years. It's almost undeniable. He's a weapon. He mismatch every year we we have seen to play Kansas City. He's always taken one very deep in the seam. He's an aggressive blocker. He's a very elusive, fast uh, pass catcher. He can even take them on like short runs and get a lot of yardage. He's just the best tight end in the NFL for the last, I'd even say, four or five years now. Four, I believe he's been for a while, but the last three, four years for sure, He ever since Mahomes has come in, uh, Travis Kelsey has been the best tight end in the NFL. And one honorable mention pick that I like to point out is Dawson Knox of the Buffalo Bills. He's also a rookie this season, former teammate of Josh Allen. I believe that he's been super productive for the Buffalo Bills. Hasn't been much of a blocker, huge pass-catching guy, but he has come out of nowhere. He wasn't even drafted, and he's been a premier pass-catcher on that team, and I think we got to give him a little bit of credit. That's why I put him in my honorable mention slot. Yeah, I think that's a great uh, top five. Um, Totally unbiased because, uh, as I'm sure our, our viewers will see, there's there's going to be a lot of similarities here. So, you know, I'll, I'll get going with me. My number five, just like you, is Dalton Schultz of Dallas. Very, very productive guy. I think the biggest thing for me is he had 60-plus catches last year, and that was a very tumultuous situation at quarterback with Dak Prescott getting hurt and then Dalton getting hurt. He's productive again this year. He's a great number three when you compare him against Amari, uh, Amari Cooper and CeeDee Lamb at the wideout positions. He's done a good job, and he's a solid blocker as well, which you have to be in that offense. Uh, number four for me is Mark Andrews, a little different from you. I, you know, I think the thing with Andrews is how productive he is in such a run-heavy offense, 
right? They don't throw the football a whole heck of a lot. And when they do, they like to go deep to Hollywood Brown on the wide receiver position or even Rashad Bateman now that he's back. Andrews does a great job taking advantage of the opportunities he does get in the passing game. He was Pro Bowl, I think, in 2019, and he's on pace for 1,200-plus yards and another Pro Bowl season this year. Number three for me is George Kittle. Great body of work. That's awesome. What's not awesome with George Kittle is his body. He's always hurt. The guy needs to be helped. Yeah. The guy has health issues last few years. He's really, really talented, great receiver, run after catch, blocking. He's a huge part of that San Francisco offense. The guy just has to get on the field. He has number one tight end ability, but he has number five availability. You know, get the two between one and five is three. That's where I have him. Number two, this is where I put Darren Waller, just because I think he's such a matchup issue, right? This is a tight end for Vegas. You know, they, he's a tight end, but he really plays all across the offense. They motion him a lot. They try and get him in one-on-one situations. His ability using his size and athleticism to make big plays and keep drives alive is very, very impressive. You know, I almost don't think as good as he's been, I think he's almost under-respected a little bit in Las Vegas. I think if he had played for a team like Kansas City or, or Dallas or New England or a bigger market team, he'd have a lot more visibility, a lot more respect. I think he's a heck of a mismatch nightmare for opposing defenses. And number one, I'm just like you. It's, it's, it's clearly Travis Kelsey. The guy is a first ballot Hall of Famer at this point, three-time Pro Bowler, uh, two-time, uh, three-time All-Pro, two-time Pro Bowler, multiple 1,000-yard uh, receiving seasons, you know, two 10-plus touchdown catch seasons. He is the stir that stirs the drink with offensive execution uh, with that Kansas City offense. Obviously, Tyreek Hill takes the top off the defense, but it's the ability for Kelsey to work the middle, work those zones and beat man that gives him such an advantage on the offensive side of the football. And my underrated guy, uh, my underappreciated guys is Hunter Henry, formerly of the Los Angeles Chargers, now with the New England Patriots. You know, he had 55 catches in 2019, 60 in 2020. He's on pace for 60 more again this year. I think the biggest tell for me with Hunter Henry is the fact that Bill Belichick paid him so much money to come to, uh, from New England after leaving L.A., Bill Belichick doesn't pay anybody. Bill Belichick didn't pay Tom Brady, you know, and now he's willing to dole out some more money for Hunter Henry. To me, that's a sign that it really likes what Hunter Henry can bring to that offense, especially helping out Mac Jones as Mac Jones continues to grow and develop. So I think Hunter Henry fits in really well in that underrated, you know, on the rise kind of tight ends in the NFL right now. All right. I think that's a great list. I love Hunter Henry. He's a, he's a great player. He was great in LA and now he's great in New England. Uh, as everyone can see, these are our list. Uh, take a few seconds, and I think we will move on to our next segment. And this one's, we already put out a segment earlier this week talking about what I would consider to be our premier matchup this week, the Thursday night game that's already passed, uh, Green Bay and Arizona. So if you want to hear about that, uh, you can go to our YouTube page and check that one out. But Nick... Would you like to go to our matchups this week? Yeah, definitely. So I got to love how great this show is at Segways. Big Segway show. Talk about Hunter Henry going from uh, the Los Angeles Chargers to the New England Patriots. And who's our matchup of the week this week? Los Angeles Chargers, New England Patriots. This we is totally such, planned that as well. I, I tell you what, we are really good execution. This is this is top notch. You know, I, but looking back on the matchup, right, that's coming coming this Sunday, this is really intriguing. New England has played a lot of close games. They played Tampa really close. They played Dallas really close. 
You know, they just are coming off of a big win against New York. They're playing better football. Mac Jones just had his first 300-yard game like we already talked about. This team's getting better. Look, I think L.A. is more talented than New England, but do you think there's a chance Mac Jones can outduel Herbert at L.A.? Uh, I don't think it's just a chance. I think it's a, a reality. I think uh, L.A. is reeling a little bit. Uh, I think they've had some tough losses. I think they've had some tough, tough fought wins lately. I think New England is on a roll. They are on a hot streak. Um, I'm trying to look back. I don't think LA is coming off a. They're coming off a bye, correct? Yep. They they after they lost to Baltimore big, they had a bye week, and now they play the Patriots. I think it's really a test right here to see. Uh, do the, can they get this team rolling again? Uh. New England's coming off a huge win. LA's coming off a tough loss, a big loss. Uh, I think uh, they kind of got exposed a little bit, so to speak. Let's see, but the way that they played the last few games, I kind of want to put my money on New England to win this game. And and here's the uh, mindset I've kind of going into it. Chargers are a young team, right? Young head coach. Herbert's obviously a young quarterback. You know, they had the tough loss against Baltimore. If they're a young team, they're not really seasoned yet. They need to get back on the field and play someone to kind of shake the cobwebs out and, you know, kind of get their mojo back. But they didn't. They went into the bye. Look, I don't know how well they handled the bye, right? Staley's their head coach, new head coach, already talked about Herbert. The Chargers, while they're always a talented team, they never really won a lot of games. I don't think they have the leadership in the locker room to handle a big loss, go into a bye and come out better. New England, they're a younger team, even though they have some senior coach leadership, obviously with Belichick, but they're a younger team and they're riding momentum. They've won two of three, but their one loss was a heartbreaker overtime against Dallas. They're playing good football coming into this. They've got momentum. The Chargers, I think, are going to be pretty darn flat. I agree with you here. I think the Patriots have a really, really good chance to win this game, especially when I look at the turnovers, right? Herbert, as good as he's been, has thrown some interceptions this year and has committed some turnovers. That cost them uh, some games, obviously, the loss to Dallas and the loss to uh, loss to Baltimore. The real question is here is, will Staley be continue to be aggressive on fourth downs? That's hurt them in their losses, but it's made their differences in their wins. What do you think? Do you think he rides the analytics another week and goes aggressive, or do you think he tries to play more field position against uh, the savvy Patriots? I don't think he knows any better. I think being a young coach, uh, he's going to live and die by the sword that he has chosen, and that is analytics. I think they're going to make some tough plays, and I think that's really going to be the defining factor here. Do those tough decisions fall their way, or do they not? If they don't, I think much like against Baltimore, it can get real ugly real quick, and if they do, I think maybe they make it a little bit more of a ball game than we're expecting. Yeah, I, I think this is definitely going to be a ball game. I think uh, New England is going to control the football. And I think what Dallas did, and obviously Baltimore did it too, even more success, is through the running game and short passing game, they kind of frustrated Herbert and that offense a little bit because they shortened and condensed the game. I think Herbert does his best against teams like Kansas City that are high-flying and aggressive. And, you know, there's a shootout kind of dynamic to it. I think that's how the Chargers want to play. They basically want to play a basketball game. I think Baltimore and Dallas created kind of a slugfest. That's not the way they want to play. I think New England's going to play a slugfest. I'm curious to see what Belichick defensively comes up against to uh, to counter Herbert. I think he's going to have a great game plan. And I think they're playing really well. 
you know, I'm going to go ahead and make my pick. I think New England pulls the upset here. I think this is a, a big upset pick for uh, the Patriots to beat Los Angeles Chargers. One uh, key matchup I have, one point about this that I would like to point out is typically I'm going to start looking at this more because it has been a big deal lately. And I think it's one thing that really hurt the Chargers, but this is a big East Coast to West Coast turnaround game. And these can be very tricky for teams. Luckily, this is a 4 o'clock game, not a 1 o'clock game, where that would usually be 10 o'clock on the East Coast. Or, no, backwards. It would be, uh, it's later, so it's almost like playing an 8 o'clock game for uh, the East Coast team being a 4 o'clock game for the Chargers. So I don't think time zone differences will really affect them too much at all. I think this is feel like a primetime game, and who's more at home than pr- at primetime than Bill, Bel- Bill Belichick and the Patriots? Uh, I will give you my matchup of the week, and then I'll let you go into yours. Uh, my matchup of the week this week, kind of an underdog game, one you may not think of, and one that you might think I'm crazy for picking. New York Giants versus the Kansas City Chiefs. The Giants have pulled off a big win this week against what has been considered typically a pretty tough defense of the Carolina Panthers, and they beat them Handily. The Kansas City uh, Chiefs have been reeling this season. Horrible, like literally last in every mess metric on defense. The offense has been very ugly. In the last few weeks, they have been <clears throat> very, very slow, very sloppy, and just not great offensively either. And here's my keys to the game. The Giants beat the Panthers last week without Saquon, without Kenny Galladay, without, uh, who's the rookie that they have, or the receiver? Tony from Florida. Yeah, Kadarius Tony. without um, Sterling Shepard. All of those guys were out last week. They have now practiced this week. It has not yet been stated at the time of this filming whether they're going to play. They are practicing currently. I see that as trending more positive that they will play this week. I think if they can beat that tough Carolina Panthers defense without all their weapons, that they can maybe come back with all the weapons now, have a little bit more confidence in their game plan, have a little bit more confidence in their ability, and they can come and punch this down-and-out Kansas City Chiefs team in the mouth, hit them where it hurts, uh, Saquon's back. You're, you got three great receivers were back. I mean, the Chiefs' pass defense is non-existent. This is a chance Danny Dimes to come back out, throw the ball all around the field, light this game up a little bit, and let's see what they're made of. I think that the New York Giants may come out this week and really stun a lot of people under the bright Monday night football lights, and I'd love to see what Peyton and Eli Manning have to say about it. Yeah, I think this is an interesting matchup. I mean, Daniel Jones has made big improvements this year. Obviously, we've never been in a situation like this. But to be fair, everyone has low expectations. I think he's going to put up a lot of yards and a lot of points. This is a very interesting matchup. Uh, so are you, are you picking New York to pull the upset here? or are you? Just I am. Big, big upset. I love it. Love those aggressive picks. Mine's not quite as aggressive, but I am going an upset. And that's Detroit beating Philadelphia 
at home. Detroit Lions are at home. Look, Detroit keeps overcoming heartbreak and they keep coming back for more. The heartbreak against Baltimore. Guess what? They're back at it with another tough performance. The heartbreak at Minnesota, losing on another last second kick. Guess what? They come out and keep playing hard. They fought their guts off against the Rams. You know, a lot of people are saying Dan Campbell outcoached Sean McVay. I tend to agree with him for that performance. I was on the road in L.A., and they came out and hit the Rams in the mouth. They ran the trick plays. They took some shots. I love the way they play. I love their energy. Look, I think Philly and Nick Casario, their head coach, Jalen Hurts, the quarterback, they're kind of reeling a little bit, right? They they had the win against Carolina. They had the tough loss against Tampa. But they're, they're just not playing great football. They're kind of struggling to – you know, take care of the ball and, and make enough big plays to, to win games at the quarterback position on offense, and their defense absolutely stinks. I think this is a chance for Jared Goff and DeAndre Swift at the running back position to have a really, really big game. I'm picking Detroit to here uh, to win this game at home. I think they get a couple turnovers off Jalen Hurts. I think this is where Detroit gets their first win of the year. Yeah, I mean, got to win sometime, right? Got to win sometime, and I think it's this weekend. I think this is a perfect time for us to go straight on into our gut check segment. We're going to blow through these. Uh, we've been, I think it's been a great show. We've been going for a while, but I think we've hit so many great topics. Great deep dive this week. Let's go straight into our gut check. All right. Let's do it. So earlier this week, I think we both chose Green Bay to upset the Arizona Cardinals. Next mm-hmm. up on the list, I've got Carolina Panthers versus Atlanta Falcons. Who you got? So I got Atlanta. Carolina's reeling. Uh, Matt Ryan's playing well. I absolutely have Atlanta. I think Kyle Pitts is different make difference maker in this game. Uh, let's see what they can do. We have Tennessee at the Colts. Tennessee keeps rolling. They beat Indy. Yeah, I, I don't see how you're going to stop Derrick Henry. Uh, I think that this Tennessee team really has finally figured it out. They've got their mojo back. Just hand the ball to Henry. Let him run for another three or 400 yards this game. Uh, there's no way you can stop it. Buffalo Bills at my, or Miami Dolphins at the Buffalo Bills. This is a blowout. Miami is falling apart. Buffalo Bills are, are waiting to come back from that loss on the road against Tennessee. I think they kill Miami, Buffalo. And I believe they had a bye last week as well. Buffalo did. Coming mm-hmm. off that bye, uh, they're proven killer, high-powered offense, good defense. Miami doesn't stand a chance here. Bengals, Jets. Uh, Cincinnati keeps rolling against a bad Jets team without Wilson. Yep. Uh, I mean, we didn't mention this. I'll bring it up very briefly right now. Joe Flacco is coming back to New York. Uh, If the Elite Dragon makes a presence on the field, I don't know if that's enough to take them best. Uh, Something to keep in mind, he has played against the Bengals many times, but I tend to agree. Joe Burrow, Jamar Chase, going to kill the Jets. Now, a very big AFC North marquee matchup. Bottom two teams, Pittsburgh Steelers, Cleveland Browns facing off against each other. Who do you got? So I think I'm, I've got to go Cleveland here. I think they showed a lot of heart against Denver. And I think Baker Mayfield, he's going to say he tries to play. Look, I don't really know if Baker Mayfield plays, makes him better or worse. I think Cincinnati just has a better team roster-wise, top down. I'm going, I'm not Cincinnati, Cleveland. I'm going Cleveland. I'm going to disagree with you here, seeing how these teams play all the time. This is a road game for Pittsburgh, uh, and they've been dealing with a lot lately. The rumors about Tomlin wanting to go coach somewhere else. I think they've had a tough time this season, and this is a big bounce-back game for them. I believe they also had a bye last week, uh, 
Maybe they've gotten Ben, I think he said, has gotten healthy. It's allowed his chest, pec, and other in- he had one other injury to heal, and he's feeling good. Uh, divisional game, anything can happen. I think Pittsburgh pulls off the win here. Uh, Eagles, Lions, I believe I'm with you. I think that Detroit, you have to win sometime. Why not now? I think Detroit is going to upset the Philadelphia Eagles. Moving on, Los Angeles Rams at the Houston Texans. Who do you got? So Rams in a blowout. You know, they, they kind of got a little scared from Detroit last week, but they're too talented to lose to a Houston team. I'm going to L.A. Yeah, as much controversy is around Houston as well. There, There's no reason why L.A. doesn't roll in here and just absolutely destroy a reeling Texas team who doesn't even really know what they're doing. Uh, San Francisco at Chicago. This is tough. Both teams are kind of playing really, really bad. I, I trust uh, Shanahan more than Nagy at this point, so I'm going San Francisco. I tend to agree with you here. I think that the Bears, they just don't know what to do. They don't know what they are doing. Uh, I just don't trust them here at all. There's few teams I'm feeling that I can't bet on them and I cannot bet on the Bears. Uh, we both have selected the New England Patriots to beat the LA Chargers. Next up, Jaguars at the Seahawks. You know, we talked about pretty much everything other than Urban Meyer. He's the luckiest guy in the world right now after all the controversy, right? He's been riding high for a few weeks. I don't think it lasts past this weekend. Even without Russell Wilson, I think Seattle beats the Jaguars. I'm going Seattle. Yeah, you know, Seattle had a tough game last week. Uh, the Saints are a better team, and Seattle was almost able to pull that one off. I think that Geno Smith is good enough to beat the Jaguars, even though he struggles against the Saints. There's no way that Jacksonville pulls this one off, but I've seen crazier things happen. Uh, next up, Tampa Bay at New Orleans. Big, big divisional rivalry here. Tampa yeah, huge, huge divisional rivalry, huge game. I think for me, this is all about how well that that Tampa offense is playing. And, and Tom Brady and Mike Evans, they're so balanced. They're so deep. New Orleans is a quality defense, but they just don't have enough bodies in the secondary to cover all these weapons that Tampa has. I think Tampa beats New Orleans and New Orleans. Yeah, I, there's no question. After they struggled so much last week against a Seahawks team, I can only imagine what a Tampa team is going to do them. Uh, next up, Washington football team at the Denver Broncos. This is an interesting one. Yeah, I, I got to go Washington, right? I feel like they made a lot of great plays against Green Bay. They played great for a half against Kansas City. Denver just looks really, really bad under Vic Fangio right now. I think Vic Fangio is probably close to getting on his way out of that, uh, out of being the Denver Broncos head coach. I'm going to Washington here. I'm going to have to agree with you. Broncos, another team, Panthers, Broncos, and Jaguars teams that I cannot bet on right now. Uh, I do have zero faith in the Broncos. They lost a tough one to the Browns, uh, but even so, the Browns are kind of reeling. They haven't been having a stellar season. I I have Washington. I think they're uh, they're going to give them a run for their money. Um, next up, let me see here. I think I scrolled. Did Washington played Green Bay last week? Correct. Yep, that's correct. Do we know? And that was a pretty close game. So, I mean, 24-10, not too bad. But, uh, so I think they can pull it out. Next up, you're, you're, I'm off this week. You were off last week. I'm off this week. 
Uh, Dallas at Minnesota. This is an interesting matchup. Dallas coming off a bye. Dak Prescott's got the calf issue. You know, Dallas has started slow the last couple of weeks. Minnesota's played in a lot of close games. I think this is a battle. I think it's really close, competitive in Minnesota. I think Dallas wins this game. They showed a lot of heart against uh, against New England. And, you know, they obviously have had big road wins against the Chargers uh, earlier in the year as well. Played well in Tampa week one. I, I think Dallas wins this game, but I think this is a really close game that comes down to the end. I have Dallas as well. They've rusted up after a bye. I think they're a far superior team to Minnesota. Minnesota just hasn't been able to put it together this season. Uh, last game, I have chosen the New York Giants to upset the Kansas City Chiefs. Are you with me? I, I wish I could be, but I can't. I, I just think I've seen the Giants. I know how beat up they are. I think they actually could win. Daniel Jones could have a great game. Uh, but I, I, I think that Patrick Mahomes and Tyree Kill and Kelsey and company, at a certain point, your talent just has to be able to win you enough games. I, I think if, if the Chiefs lose this game, it's this long, sharp spiral to just a disaster season. But I don't think they will. I'm picking Kansas City. I, I think the disaster is going to happen, so we will see. Luckily, my Baltimore Ravens get a rest this week. I also believe the Las Vegas Raiders are out this week as well. Uh, pretty small bye week comparatively, but hey, that's all the games. We've picked them all. Uh, as you can see, they're all here. Uh, any final words as we let the fans take one last look at our picks? No, I think we've... Uh... Had a really fun show. I really love the way we got through the deep dives, all this great stuff. The NFL season has been full of a lot of amazing storylines. Appreciate all our listeners finding us on YouTube, Spotify podcast, Apple podcast, uh, also on our website, smishow.com. You know, find us at Twitter at SMI football show and Facebook at uh, Saturday morning inspection or SMI football show. You know, we have a lot of funny tweets and posts and you get all of our latest information along our videos and, and all the content we create as always really appreciate you guys. We really appreciate uh, the support we get from everyone who listens and follows us and uh, excited. Another, another great week of football coming up. And as everyone can see, We've upped the ante each week. We keep getting better. We've added some killer graphics these last couple weeks, some good representations, and we only have plans to get better and better each week. So tune in next week to see what we have prepared. Nick, I'll see you next week.